Hello, everybody. Just wanted to give you a quick heads up before we started the episode this week. This week's episode does deal with the COVID-19 pandemic. So if that's a topic you're looking to avoid right now, maybe this episode isn't for you. We do have plenty of other episodes about grasshoppers and sea animals and other fun things, but this one is about COVID-19 misinformation. I also just wanted to let everyone know uh, before you jump on into this episode, um, at the time of the recording, the COVID-19 pandemic was at its worst, just reaching its, its worst in India. And we do want to make sure we're supporting people around the world who are struggling with these issues. So I just wanted to let everyone know there is a link in the show notes um, with a lot of resources for what you can do to help people in India right now who are struggling with their worst wave of the pandemic. So um, even if you don't want to listen to the episode, uh, check out that link in the show notes. Um, Help our friends. Thanks. Hello, guys, gals, and non-binary pals. Welcome back to another episode of Science in Podcast, presented by Science in Pictures Magazine. As always, I am one of your hosts, Madison Dix, here with... The other one, Jared Allen. That's Jared Allen. He's your other host. Yay! And we're back this week to, once again, take the headache out of peer-reviewed scientific literature. And also um, give you some fun facts and de-jargon some jargon and... You know, all the fun stuff that we like to do. Um, For anyone who's listened before, welcome back and thank you so much. Um, And for new listeners, welcome for the first time. If you like this podcast, please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe, particularly the subscribe. That's the thing that really helps us um, spread the word and find more listeners. And we really want to do that. So that's a huge help if you want to do that for us. Um, and also, if you have any feedback for us on this podcast or other episodes, feel free to reach out to us. We have an Instagram and a Facebook, Science in Podcast, with underscores on the Instagram. We also have an email address, which is podcast at scienceandpictures.com. But you didn't come here to listen to me tell you what to do. We didn't? You came here to learn about science. Oh, okay. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so the science, <laughs> science we'll be talking about today um, I actually brought this article this week. I found it on Eureka Alert, and it comes from McGill University in Montreal, Quebec, Canada. Ooh. It is called Infodemic Pathways, Evaluating the Role that Traditional and Social Media Play in Cross-National Information Transfer. Oh, I've never heard the word infodemic ever, so that's interesting. Good thing it's in our jargon corner. <laughs> Uh, for yeah. anyone uh, who's been keeping track, this is literally the first time where I haven't asked, I haven't masked Addison uh, anything uh, from her paper, so uh, this is going to be fun for me too. This is brand new to Jared. He has no idea what I'm going to be talking about today. Neither do I. No, just kidding. I do. <laughs> um, <laughs> I read it, I promise. So, um, this study, again, it's from uh, McGill University in Canada. It aims to discover the origin of a COVID-19 infodemic in Canada. Um, infodemic, meaning uh, conspiracy theories, poorly sourced medical advice, information trivializing the virus, all of that has been spreading very quickly all over Canada over the course of the pandemic. And that is a big concern to Canadians because all of that uh, false information really has the ability to change people's attitudes and people's behaviors. And in the middle of an actual pandemic, that can put the health and safety of Canadians at risk. So... The objective of this study is to figure out where all of that false information is coming from. 
Oh boy. And I bet you're super excited to find out. (laughs) (laughs) You said before this that you were uh, a a little like preemptively mad and I feel like I am too (laughs) based on what you said so far. Yeah, trigger warning. Um, It might make you mad. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but before we jump into all that, let's spice it up with a couple fun facts, why don't we? Yeah, you wanna go first? Yeah, sure. So my fun fact this week um, is that I found out that in the universe, so 90% of all of the matter in the universe is apparently hydrogen, and the other 10% is helium. And every single other element, like carbon, oxygen, like every, every other type of matter is less than 0.1% of matter in the universe. That's so many balloons. I can't even fathom. I just think it's nuts. Like, everything in my room right now, this is all so rare, apparently. Like, this rock is real special. <laughs> Earth being the rock. Yeah, it does... It does make me kind of feel at home and a little bit uh, special, even though uh, we've all been trying to get away from that, like, human Earth-centric view of the universe for a while now. But I like it. Yeah, like, we're not the center of the universe, but we're pretty special in the universe. Yeah. <laughs> we're alive, after all. We replicate. Yeah. Um, so that that blew my mind. Um, and apparently, also, all of the other elements are just, like, basically, like, breakdowns of hydrogen. Yeah, it, yeah ba- does not happen inside like i was gonna say suns i uh i make that mistake all the time calling stars that aren't our sun the sun our sun's the only sun it's called the sun it's a star that's our sun um but yeah it happens inside stars yes. <laughs> like <laughs> i mean well can there be other suns or is sun just the name of our star it's just the name of our star oh yeah it's the sun, the sun. yeah the other ones Stay are like, away from my son. I think my favorite uh, star is called Beltagoose, or some people were pronounced as Beetlejuice, which I don't think is right, but Beltagoose sounds fun. Uh, it's Beetlejuice, Jared. If Read a book. disagree. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was actually going through uh, an old book in, in preparation for next week's ep- episode, and I uh, relearned this fun fact that the uh, average red blood cell uh, will travel about 300 miles in its lifetime. Wow, just like loop-de-looping around the veins. Exactly. Um, It actually could be a lot longer than that, but uh, the problem with uh, being a red blood cell is that as you pass through the spleen, it is actively checking the viability of all your red blood cells, because once they stop being like super springy and super squishy, they can't travel through like veins and capillaries anymore. So once, mm-hmm. uh, basically before they reach that stage, uh, they're destroyed in the spleen. So uh, the average mileage, I would say, of a red blood cell is about 300 miles. That's crazy. Right? Wow. I did not know the spleen was like such a hard <laughs> Oh, <laughs> oh uh, tag on fun fact. Red blood cells aren't real cells. They're just called red blood cells because that's convenience. But they don't have a nucleus and they don't release waste because they have no reason to. So uh, they're technically classified as a corpuscle. Okay. They're 90%. <laughs> Do you not think that's a fun word? Because I love it. They're corpuscles. It is a fun word. I'm just like, huh. I guess that explains why they're like lifesaver shaped instead of round or like <laughs> blood color. Yeah. So basically a red blood cell is a 95% hemoglobin. It's just that inside. And then basically it's lined on the inside by this meshwork of proteins that is just like super duper elastic. And that's why it keeps that lifesaver shape. Cause that's, I guess what evolution has decided the most convenient for traveling through the body. All right. Well, who am I to argue with evolution? <laughs> <laughs> who are we? <laughs> All right, good fun facts. Go team. Go team. All right, that was fun. Do you want to skip on over to the jargon corner with me? 
maybe not this time. I'll walk because this is a serious subject. Madison's still skipping. I walked the whole way. You did walk, but we're here. <laughs> all right. So um, the jargon for this article all about COVID-19 misinformation. Um, the first piece of jargon is the word misinformation. <laughs> um, yeah, misinformation would be the uh, opposite of information. Well, no, because it's still a form of formation, if that's the right way of using that, but it's wrong information. It's intentionally misleading. Aha. So here's the thing we got to clear up. You are close. Misinformation is false information. Like you said, it's fake, not true, but it doesn't have to be spread on purpose. Uh, misinformation is false information that's spread regardless of intent to mislead. So misinformation is something that happens all the time from day to day because human beings are <laughs> not perfect, as we've discussed so many times. So like we make mistakes, we forget things, we mishear things, misremember things. So like if you um, tell your friend something that you heard on a TV show that it wasn't really true, but you thought it was true, that's still technically misinformation. Yeah, that's why eyewitness uh, reports do not have nearly as much weight they do in court as they used to nowadays. Uh, not yeah, nowadays, like, later days. Yeah, like so for example, um, last week on the Seaspiracy episode, when I said that Ali Tabrizi was American, when the fact is he's from the UK, that was misinformation. <laughs> <laughs> that also means that you accidentally gaslighted me because I was like, oh, he's British, right? And you were like, no, no, he's not British. I was like, no, you misheard that. <laughs> Don't trust your ears, Jared. Trust me. <laughs> well, I accept your apology. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, I hope our listeners will forgive me as well. All right. So that's misinformation. It's not real. Um, but the intent doesn't matter. Sometimes it's spread on purpose, sometimes on accident. How about our next piece of jargon, disinformation? Um, I'm going to fire the same shot and say that it's misinformation that's intentional. Exactly. Oh, cool. Okay. So disinformation is when you have something, a lie, a falsehood that is being spread on purpose. So it's deliberately misleading or biased information. Um, it can be manipulative narratives. Uh, propaganda, and at its most extreme, a hostile act of tactical political subversion. Is that, like, does, does that encompass murder? That's... Uh, no. Okay. <laughs> More like uh, what was going on with the Soviet Union and the United States during the Cold War. Oh, okay. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. Spreading rumors about another country, basically. Like, espionage is disinformation. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, which still does happen. I mean, like, there was a disinformation campaign led by the Russian government, and that was part of the reason that Trump got elected in 2016. Yeah, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, so it's really dangerous. And then um, the other thing that makes disinformation particularly dangerous um, is that journalists aren't really allowed to say if something is disinformation or a lie, um, because unless they're 100% sure of the intent behind the misinformation, um, they can be sued for libel if they call someone a liar and that person was not intentionally spreading disinformation. Oh, jeez. Yeah. So a lot of politicians can get away with disinformation by saying that they thought it was true. Yeah. And also gerrymandering and voter suppression. All that stuff. Yeah. So yeah, uh, misinformation can be dangerous, but it's not intentionally so. Disinformation is intentionally destructive and misleading. Um, 
And then we have one more little guy hanging out here in our jargon corner. And that is the word infodemic. So from my context clues, I'm going to say that an infodemic is the um, out of proportion blown up spread of mis or disinformation. Exactly. Uh, it's a rapid and far reaching spread of uh, accurate and or inaccurate information about something. Oh, um, so yeah. So, interesting. So an infodemic can just be like, oh, cigarettes might cause cancer. And then like, because that is true, is that an infodemic? Yeah. Okay. It's when it's when um, information pertaining to one particular thing just spreads like wildfire. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So the infodemic that we're talking about in this particular article is a misinformation infodemic. So not intentional. So not intentional um, or a mix of intentional and not intentional. <laughs> As a journalist, who am I to say? <laughs> um, <laughs> Um, yeah, they can't, they can't tell if it's disinformation or misinformation because, well, you'll see why, but it's definitely at, at the very least it's misinformation, um, that's spreading like wildfire around Canada. And that in misinformation in this case is all about the COVID-19 pandemic, which as we discussed, whoo, can have really big, bad impacts for public health. Um, so you might be wondering what kind of misinformation, uh, was spreading in Canada at the time of this study. By the way, um, this was published this year, um, this month. This was published in May of 2021. Um, the study has taken place over the last three months. Um, oh, and I forgot to list the authors. Let's just give a shout out to our researchers real quick. Um, their names are Angus Bridgman, Eric Merkley, Oleg Zinlin, Peter John Lewin. Lewin. I tried to look up the pronunciation of that one. I'm sorry, guys. Um, Taylor Owen and Derek Ruths. Oh, and then I should also mention that even though I found this on your week alert, it was actually published in a uh, journal called Frontiers in Political Science. Okay. Yeah. All right. Anyway, back to what exactly is the misinformation that's spreading in Canada? There are eight different rumors, we'll call them, that, that are spreading. Are six of them about the vaccine? Uh, you'll see. <laughs> Um, so before I even say these statements, I just want to make it really clear. The statements I'm about to say are false. They are not true. Please do not believe the following things. Thank you. All right. So these are the false pieces of misinformation. One, the coronavirus is no worse than the seasonal flu. What, uh, just because something's worse in a different way, it doesn't mean that it's... Anyway, keep going. <laughs> Yeah, so like to debunk that, um, the coronavirus is much worse than the seasonal flu. It's killed a lot more people, um, and it's a much bigger problem. It is ridiculously uh, transmissible. Yes. Um, statement number two, which again is false. <laughs> Drinking water every 15 minutes will prevent the coronavirus. That's a great way to give yourself water poisoning. Yeah, I mean, we all need to hydrate a little better, but it's not going to give you any like immunity to this virus. No. <laughs> um, also drinking water every 15 minutes could be a little dangerous. It is actually possible to drink too much. Water. Yeah. Good rule of thumb. Just drink when you're thirsty. That's it. Yeah. All right. So that was false. Once again. Um, okay. Next false statement. The Chinese government has developed the coronavirus as a bioweapon. Yeah. I'm only, Again, okay, so true. I'm only laughing because uh, the uh, place I worked at right before this, my boss floated this as a reasonable idea, and he came from a science background, and I was just like, what the hell is wrong with you? 
Oof, not a good look. No. Not a good look. Yeah, no. The Chinese government did not develop the coronavirus as a bioweapon. That is completely false. Um, unfortunately, it spread in a perfectly natural way and it could happen again. Mm-hmm. Well, not perfectly natural. Um, it does have something to do with illegal wildlife trafficking. Um, but it has nothing to do with the Chinese government trying to cause a pandemic. It doesn't. Not intentional. It actually kind of mirrors in a lot of ways what could have happened with SARS if it actually reached global proportions. But like 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 the uh, first SARS back in the late 90s or early 2000s, it's the, yeah. same, it's the same coronavirus. It's closely. Actually, I don't know if it's closely related. I shouldn't say that. But it does the same stuff. That's true. But back to the falsehoods. Okay. <laughs> All right. False statement number four. Homeopathy and home remedies can help manage and prevent coronavirus. We could easily do a squashing nonsense all about homeopathy if a million podcasts haven't already. Yeah. I mean, there are like home remedies and homeopathy things that can help you with stuff like a sore throat, maybe help with some of the symptoms of the coronavirus, but there's absolutely no home remedy that can prevent the coronavirus or make it less dangerous. Yeah. Maybe make you a little more comfortable. If you have a mild case, exactly. that's it. And I will say that in like the strict like definition of what homeopathy means to like the hardcore practitioners, diluting a substance down to a thousand times what it should be and drinking it does not do anything to you. It, you might feel like it, but it doesn't do anything. Is that the definition of homeopathy? Yes. That is the definition of the person who invented it. Oh. Yep. All right. A little fun piece of jargon for y'all there. I didn't even know that. I uh, learned that from, I think, Sawbones, which is an excellent podcast. Uh, oh, I love Sawbones. Sawbones shout out so to good. Sawbones. I might have also learned it from This Podcast Will Kill You, which is another really good one. Oh, shout out to This Podcast Will Kill You. Both so good. Yeah. You know what's bad? This next piece of false information. <laughs> um, the coronavirus was caused by the human consumption of fats in China. Uh, no. No. No, not at all. No one's eaten bats, Okay. They're so much smaller than you think they are, for one. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, yeah, I've never heard of bats being eaten as food. Um, also, although bats are involved in the transmission of coronavirus from animals to humans, it wasn't humans eating bats. Most likely what happened is a bat bit an animal like a pangolin, um, which was then handled a lot by humans, and that's how it was transmitted. So no, no one was eating bats. Yes. I also want to add, um, this information comes from Spillover by David Quammen, which is a fantastically researched book, but it also does stem from the very real problem of overpopulation in China and some of these countries whose governments just really don't supply for them in the way that they should, and so it sort of forces people to do things that are comparable to the bushmeat trade in Africa. It forces them to actually go out and eat these forms of wildlife, which is not their fault. Um, oh, yeah. As as far as like people, you know, blaming the wet markets in China um, for this, uh, there's a reason those things exist. It's not just like people being stupid. It's people trying to survive. OK, right. so off. yeah. Yeah. All right. So you busted that one <laughs> on to number six. <laughs> um, vitamin C can ward off the coronavirus. <laughs> no. Hashtag airborne lawsuit. Yeah. No, vitamin C is not going to prevent the coronavirus. I'm sorry, everybody. Um, although, like, it does make you feel a little bit brighter and more chipper sometimes, and it's an important vitamin for your body. Yeah. Um, but unless you take enough to literally poison you, your body is just going to get rid of all the vitamin C it doesn't need. Yep, it just you just pee it out. Yep. Um, and yeah, no, it doesn't. I'm sorry, it doesn't ward off against coronavirus. It'd be awesome if it did, but it just doesn't. Yeah. There's nothing to back that up. Sorry, everyone. Um, all right. Number seven. So that was false. This next one also false. Just got to remind everyone. These are all false. Okay. 
Um, all right. So this was um, circulating throughout the pandemic that there is a vaccine for the coronavirus that national governments and pharmaceutical companies won't release. That seems correct, even just because there were definitely some vaccines that were begun research and then discontinued because people realized the risks. Like that part of the research definitely happened, but there's no viable vaccine that the government isn't sharing. Yeah, like they literally <laughs> expedited the process of creating these vaccines a lot um, in order to get them out as, as quickly as possible. Um, so no, they weren't hoarding vaccines and like refusing them like refusing to release them to the public. They were doing everything that they could to get those out to the public as soon as possible. Um, And then, well, this isn't in here, but another rumor that I've heard personally, you know, people saying that because these vaccines were developed so quickly that that's a sign that they like aren't effective. Not true. true. The reason it takes so much longer for other vaccines is because they struggle so much to get funding and resources, but this was a global problem and everyone was like, we need you to do this. So they gave them the funding and the resources to get it done quickly. Exactly. Every single thing that's necessary to deem every other vaccine safe has also been done for the COVID-19 vaccines that are out right now. Correctamundo. Yep. Um, so yeah, false. And then the last one is that high temperatures, such as from saunas and hair dryers, can kill the coronavirus. <laughs> So this actually does have a corollary from back in uh, early, well, not early history, back in the 18 and 1900s, um, where people who uh, were suffering from neural syphilis, which is when syphilis gets inside your brain and unfortunately makes you go insane. um, Mm -hmm. There were a couple doctors who went throughout mental uh, institutions. Obviously, they didn't ask the people, but they uh, injected them with what was supposed to be a non-lethal form of malaria because the high fever actually did kill the syphilis. But Again, no consent was actually given in any of this. And it's it's a mess of medical malpractice. But anyway. Wow. That is an interesting little tangent. I love those. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's fascinating. Yeah. So it wasn't true then and it isn't true now. <laughs> like a fever in your body can fight off certain viruses and infections. Um that's like your body's way of fighting things, but like external high temperatures, nada. No, no chance. Sorry. Saunas are nice. Um, if you want to go in one, like, sure. Um, don't like try to cure yourself with a hairdryer ever. Yeah. That's just, it kind of, it it kind of has the same energy as, I don't know if you saw these infomercials back in the day, but it was like this piece of tape that you put on your foot. Um, when you went to bed. Oh, and it draws out all the toxins. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Sounds like (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's just one of those things that just simply does not work. Um, so those are like the main pieces of misinformation that they were studying as pieces of this infodemic. Those were not the only pieces of misinformation being spread, but those were the ones that were repeated really often. Um, all of those statements are false. (laughs) Um, and they're also dangerous, um, for those to be widespread, um, because, you know, the more people hear things, the more likely they are to believe them. We tend to confuse familiarity with, uh, trust. Um, and so as things, these things are circulated more, the more people hear them, the more people start to believe them. And as you can see, a lot of those ideas would cause people to have a false sense of security and think that they can handle the coronavirus on their own without doctors and experts. It could cause them to ignore federal guidelines in favor of those home remedies, or even because it's a matter of distrust in their government. 
If they think their government's, you know, withholding a vaccine from them, they might not trust their statements. There's just a lot of a lot of problematic effects that can arise from this. Right. One of the things that I think makes this type of thing so effective, though, is like we're still, you know, an animal on this planet. So we still have that natural drive to figure out the best ways to, to, to survive. So if we have a simple and elegant but effective solution just plopped on our laps, um, if we're desperate enough, we're going to latch onto it. Yeah, like the the real information does tend to be a bit more complicated and nuanced, but just like we tend to confuse familiarity with fact, we also tend to go with the simplest idea um, when we're not sure which one is right. And, you know, a simple idea like vitamin C will prevent you from getting the coronavirus. That's easy to latch onto. It's easy to get a hold of vitamin C. Um, but if you hold on to that and you do that, then you're walking around without a mask and with no actual protections, you know, taking risks that you shouldn't be taking. Yeah, with what basically amounts to snake oil. Yeah. Yeah. So obviously it's a problem. Um, so these researchers are trying to investigate where is this misinformation coming from? Um, their hypothesis is that the misinformation is traveling from the U.S. through social media. That is unfortunately completely believable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, mm -hmm. It's going to get more believable as we go through oh, this as well. God. Okay. Um, all right. So they did this. They investigated this by first looking and making a detailed comparison of Canadian media versus U.S. media. Um, then they analyzed following and sharing patterns in Canadian social media, comparing Twitter followership and engagement of the U.S. versus Canada-based accounts. And they identified associations between U.S. account followership and the spread of misinformation on Twitter, as well as between the U.S.'s news exposure and COVID-19 misperceptions in the mass public. So to break that down, first, let's look at what they found out about the Canadian media. So looking at the Canadian media and reviewing lots of other studies that have been done on the Canadian media. Did they watch Letter they Kenny? Found <laughs> they just watched Letterkenny. I wish. I love that show. Shout out to Letterkenny. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right. Um, so the researchers found that Canadian media follows strict standards for factual reporting, more so than the U.S. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> Canadians uh, in general over the course of the pandemic have been exposed to consistent messaging from their traditional media and from their elected political elites, emphasizing the importance of significant action to combat the pandemic. Makes sense. I'm getting mad. <laughs> yep. So that's good so far. Good for good for you, Canada. Good for you guys. Um, would love to be anywhere here. but here. Please <laughs> <laughs> let me in. Save me. I grew up next door. <laughs> All right. Um, I didn't, but I know Madison. <laughs> um, there's also a very well studied link between um, media in the U.S. and Canada. Um, the relationship has been described by former Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau. Did you know there were more, there was like a, another Trudeau 50 years ago? I thought, wow, Jesus, okay. I wonder yeah, if so it's Justin, it's Justin Trudeau right now, and then I guess 50 years ago it was Pierre Trudeau. Hmm. I wonder if there's a Trudeau every 50 years and it follows a cycle. I wonder if it's like the Bushes in the U.S. I really don't know. <laughs> Maybe. Canadians, let us know. Anyway, um, former Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau <laughs> described the U.S.-Canada relationship as sleeping with an elephant. One is affected by every twitch and grunt. I'm the so... U.S. would be the elephant in that metaphor. Yes. <laughs> the <big old laughs> elephant. I'm so sorry, Canada. Yeah. I think it's honestly an unfair comparison 
to the elephant. (laughs) 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 Um, But basically what that metaphor means um, is that Canadian culture and media is very heavily influenced by the United States. I think I definitely also intentionally chose the visage of an elephant because of a certain party. (laughs) Just wait. Oh, the elephant in the room uh-huh. is farting. Sorry. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, okay. So also um, in Canada, there's a long history of a lot of fear of U.S. cultural influence uh, infiltrating Canada. So there have been a lot of actions that the Canadian government has taken to prevent that, including the Canadian National Film Board, the Canadian Radio Broadcasting Corporation, um, there's Canadian content regulation, Um, that requires radio and television broadcasters to air, like a certain percentage of their content has to be totally made by Canadians. Hmm. Um, And it's a high percentage. Um, And so because of all of those interventions, um, actually most Canadians prefer domestic news uh, for print radio and television media. Um, So basically they're preferring Canadian news sources for their formal news. Yeah. Probably mostly wondering Um, uh, what the hell's happening in that country below them. mm -hmm. But they also do consume U.S. media, um, news media. um, And the amount to which they're doing that has been going up. Um, Another key finding of their analysis of Canadian media is that they found hardly any instances of the misinformation being reported by the Canadian media. Good for them. I know, right? Yeah. Oh, jelly. That means jealous. (laughs) (laughs) jealous all right now let's uh let's swing on over to their analysis of u.s media we have to we have to it's the science spirit we have to go where the science leads good the bad even if (laughs) you are listeners who are not in the u.s sorry congratulations (laughs) (laughs) sorry and congratulations okay so um turns out u.s news exposure is associated with more COVID-19 misconceptions, even after controlling for domestic news exposure and other indicators of political engagement. Can they call that the Tucker Carlson effect? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) They also found that the link between social media and misperceptions is strongest in Canadians um, for those who self-selected as having a preference for U.S. news sources. Thanks. So when they are seeing misinformation being spread on Canadian social media, um, it's by the people who are like, oh, yeah, I like Fox News. Oh, God. Um, pretty much. Um, I can't. So among, <laughs> among the Canadians with the highest level of U.S. news exposure, um, the observed effect of social media consumption increases more than threefold. We have a goddamn so that's problem. Thing. Wow. Yeah. So basically that means um, most of the people who are in Canada who are following U.S. news are getting it on social media. Hmm. Which is one yeah. of the worst ways to consume news. Exactly. Um, yeah. So, and that has to do with the fact that social media exposure um, has the capacity to amplify the impact of content coming from the U.S., I will also say on a personal level that when I do something stupid like um, scroll through the news section on Reddit, I'll, a lot of I do is just read headlines and not actually get into the article. And then what accidentally happens is I keep the memory of what the title was, which might not at all be what the article was actually trying to say. Super common. Yeah. Like there's a lot of mis... Yeah. I'll talk more about that later, I promise. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, all right. Back to the U.S. media. 
Um, in the U.S., uh, researchers also observed a very high degree of elite polarization on the severity of COVID-19. So by elite polarization, they mean um, rich people having strong opinions. The elite are the rich people or, you know, the people who get a lot of attention in the U.S., celebrities for whatever reason. Polarization means far to one side and far to the exact opposite side. Hmm. They are split. And we're just forced to listen to all of their opinions. Yeah. Um, which checks out as a as an American. Yep. Yeah, that happens <laughs> a, a lot. <laughs> Hundreds of thousand percent. Our famous people are always yelling at each other. Mm -hmm. um, and that has trickled down into public opinion because it's reported on constantly. Also, they found that really important uh, partisan gaps emerged between Democrats and Republicans um, in their perceptions of uh, COVID-19 risk, um, their social distancing practice, and their mask usage. Hmm. Almost like the yeah. uh, individuality complex kind of makes you not give a crap about other people. Yep. American exceptionalism. Um, uh, that COVID-19 misinformation that is reported is reinforced by American media, which reports on it all the time, and also political figures, which talk about it all the time. Um, they also found that the main propagators of this information, this misinformation, are right-wing news outlets and Republican political elites. Mm -hmm. So, um, having the elites um, spreading this stuff is bad, obviously, um, because basically when somebody who already has a lot of the public's attention says something, um, everyone's going to report on it because of our 24-hour news cycle. Uh, everyone wants to know what, what, the, what the popular people are saying. Um, so, if they're saying stupid sh**. We're all going to have a stupid party. So they also found that many Americans are incidentally exposed to misinformation um, from partisan media and that mainstream media sources carry elite sponsored misinformation to the mass public in their normal coverage of just like elite debate. Um, so basically, if like somebody who's popular believes something, then that misinformation is going to get spread by both types of partisan media, even though one is correcting it and one is confirming it. Oh, so it ends up having the same effect. It still adds to the repetition. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's really not easy for journalists to ignore things that the elites say, especially when it's like the president and his allies, um, which is not so much a problem now. Hey, Biden, you're <laughs> not as bad. Um, but it was, huge, it was a huge problem uh, when President Trump was president. Yeah. Maybe don't, yeah. Maybe don't call him President Trump anymore. <sighs> yeah. I used to call him the occupant or, <laughs> or Ivanka's dad. <laughs> or the squatter. Yeah. Anyway, um, moving on. So another issue is that mainstream news in the U.S. Uh, are in competition with partisan news. Um, so basically that creates incentives to carry really polarizing messages, even in nonpartisan news sources, um, because they need viewers. Yeah. Um, because it's viewers equal money. And in America, money is everything. It's like the tendency of the big time news in general to just focus on a lot of like really scary and bad stories just because that's what gets people watching. Yeah. So like all of the political discourse around the election um, was super saturated with COVID-19 misinformation. And that's something that really doesn't happen nearly as much in other peer countries that these researchers were looking at. Mm, yeah. Yeah. God damn it. Misinformation is often attached to political information in our country. I don't know what to say besides I'm sorry. 
<laughs> Sorry and congrats once again <laughs> for the non-Americans out there. <laughs> I think we found the title. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. Um, all right. So they also found that belief in misinformation um, was spread and believed by lots of Americans. Um, so they cited quite a few different polls. Um, there was a poll from March 2020 um, from The Economist that found that 13% of Americans believed that the coronavirus was a hoax. Already? That's more wow. than one in 10. That's a lot for it not having hit the country yet. Guess what percent believed that the coronavirus was man-made? Do I even want to guess? Um, 20. 49. Don't tell me that. Go back. Half of Americans go back in March what... 2020 believed that coronavirus was man-made. Again, go back to when you didn't say that, and let's keep going. <laughs> oh, I'm getting flushed again. <laughs> so scary living here. Um, okay. Who <laughs> Do you want to guess what percent of Americans in March 2020 believed that the threat of the coronavirus was being exaggerated for political reasons? 60. Not 44. Oh, okay. So it's about half, about half of Americans. God damn it. Yeah. Pretty bad. Um, yeah. Okay, but don't get too sad yet. Um, because it's so, going to get worse later? No, there's there's more polls. Um, and some of them aren't as bad. Okay. So, um, so they also polled specifically people who identified as Democrat or Republican. And um, a poll on March 1st from Civics found that 68% of Democrats um, were moderately to extremely concerned about COVID-19 in March. 68%. Okay. Which is good. Yeah. Because it was, it was about to hit us. Um, however, in, in that same poll, um, the percentage of Republicans who thought, who were really concerned about COVID was only 21%. Mm. So that's um, basically seven out of 10 Democrats knew that it was a high concern and only two out of 10 Republicans. Go with whatever the echo chamber tells you. Yeah. Um, there's more. <laughs> um, there's, there's a lot of research here about the partisan gaps. Basically, Republicans overall were much more likely um, to downplay the danger of the virus. Okay, before anyone like jumps on Facebook to yell at their local Republican right now, I just want to clarify um, that many people who identify as Republican didn't actively choose that based on facts or values. It's more because they have been exposed to repetitive disinformation that's targeting groups like Christians, the rural working class, socially isolated individuals, conspiracy minded individuals. It's it's targeted, targeted uh, misinformation. Um, Republican elites are a big problem. Um, but being Republican isn't always an informed choice. Many people just gravitate towards the local mainstream in their area or whatever fringe group makes them feel included, honestly. Uh, and many people who identify as Republicans also suffer a lot because it's a, there are toxic ideas embedded in that discourse. Um, and that can cause people to reject parts of themselves and feel that they're not worthy. So anyway, I say all this just because it's it's really important that we don't just pretend that being a Democrat makes you morally superior to other people because it doesn't. Um, we need to acknowledge the influence of our environment, our privileges. Um, 
I'm not saying you have to go and like make friends with Republicans. Everyone can choose their friends. Uh, you don't have to talk to anybody you don't want to talk to. I'm just saying um, it's it's not a good use of energy to to put down other people and, and make them feel bad about themselves. Um, that energy can be much better spent and go much further if we focus that energy on addressing the actual structural and systemic white supremacy that perpetuates this toxicity. Um, yeah. So just keep that in mind as we continue with the statistics. Yes. Um, they were more likely to report that they didn't want to wear a mask, um, that they weren't going to wash their hands, that they weren't going to change travel plans. Um, pretty much at the same ratio as like the 60 to 20, 60 percent of Democrats, um, you know, believing the correct information versus 20 percent of Republicans. Do you want to hear some of the quotes they um, they popped out coming directly from right leaning media outlets? I guess we have to. I guess so. Oh, okay. Fast forward from this part, friends, if you're starting to like get angry, because this is this is going to send you into a rage and just, you know, take care of yourself. But as okay, always, so... I have to sit through it. Yeah. <laughs> Once again, this week I'm making Jared do something that no one should have to do. <laughs> Welcome to my show. Uh... <laughs> okay. So Sean Hannity, very popular right-wing pundit. Looks like a Muppet. Yes, he does. Um, he looks like a Muppet, and he said that the virus was a fraud by the deep state trying to spread panic, manipulate the economy, and suppress dissent. How is a depression good for the economy? False. <laughs> like, oh, what? I guess, like, he was saying that they were trying to, like, m like basically make President Trump look bad at, like, the end of his presidency, just so he wouldn't get reelected. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah, just spread a, a global pandemic just for that. That makes sense. No, it doesn't. Okay. It makes a little too Rush much sense. Up. Like, we would do that. Not like <laughs> we, but like our country. Yeah. All right. Next clown up to bat, Rush Limbaugh. Oh, the dead one. Oh, yeah, he died. Yay. <laughs> should I spell so excited? <laughs> um, anyway. Yes, we should. Listen, I'm not, gonna, I'm not sad that he died. He's a terrible person who hurt so many people. Yeah. Um, and he suggested that the virus was a plot hatched by the Chinese to harm the U.S. economy. Why? Wow. Again, so that to Canada. these could all be debunked by just look at the rest of the world. It's happening yeah. everywhere, guys. Yeah. Um, bad. Bad. Um, bad. Limbaugh. Spray bottle. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Hush, Limbaugh. All right. <laughs> <laughs> all right. And then um, in April of 2020, um, Trish Reagan, who is a Fox business anchor, told all million of their viewers um, that worry over the coronavirus is yet another attempt to impeach the president. I don't have a response for that one. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> bad, bad. But bad, bad, bad. Bonk. Denial and disinformation exploding all over right, right wing media outlets and then conservative elites just, you know, parroting that and downplaying the concern about the virus just all over the damn place. Yep. Um, yeah. So consistent with this, just one more before we jump off of this train. <laughs> <laughs> Why? So polling data from mid-March of 2020 revealed that only 38% of Fox News viewers, which is a right-wing media outlet, only 38% of Fox News viewers were worried about coronavirus. Um, and then uh, 
of national newspaper readers, 72% were concerned and 71% of CNN viewers. Hmm. 30% seems kind of high. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, I mean, I guess it's... Well, that's just measuring if they're worried. Oh, uh, oh yeah, true. Like, it's not like a, are you going to get this kind of question? Yeah. So, um, yeah, basically all of this misinformation in the U.S. Um, is very much present in our official media, particularly political media, and it's the worst um, the further right you go. All right. Now, let's look at social media in the U.S. Yeah. Switching over. Okay, and just to make sure everyone's on the same page. So when we're talking about regular media, we're talking about, you know, like, Turning on the news on TV, uh, so news broadcasts, newspapers, um, and radio is the other one. <laughs> <laughs> Those old fireside um, chats. Yeah. We're talking about social media. We're talking about Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, Reddit, YouTube, LinkedIn, Pinterest, and messaging apps. Did you ever see that um, there was an interview uh Trump was doing a press release or something, and there was a reporter that talked about um, him using Twitter or something, and he felt the need to stop her and go, well, first, you you call, you call it Twitter, but I call it social media. But, like... That is a really good Trump impression. Holy sh**. Oh, thank you. <laughs> wow. It's a giant. Oh, my God. <laughs> like he's here. Okay, he's gone. <laughs> I threw him out. <laughs> We're going to have to use that again. <laughs> All right. Back to the science. Um, social media in the U.S. versus Canada. So these researchers analyzed the behaviors of 200,000, um, the 200,000 most active Canadian Twitter users. There's 200,000 most active. Yeah. Oh, yeah, there's a lot of people. That tracks. There are a lot of people in Canada. It's a big country. Um, <laughs> did you know? There's less people there than here, but still a lot of people. Yeah. And they like they like social media a lot. Um so Canadians, it turns out they're really heavy users of social media. Um, five out of six Canadians have a Facebook account. Wow. Uh, one out of two have an Instagram account, so half. Two out of five have a Twitter account. Um, and then they also have really high usage of the other ones too. But um, So yeah, they use social media a lot. And that is notable because social media um, have been found to be a very key pathway by which misleading information has entered the more mainstream discourse especially medically misleading information. Yeah. Um, and that's also been really well studied in the last decade because on social media, you can see peer-to-peer -peer interactions. It's right there. Um, so there's been an explosion in research of how misinformation is generated and how it spreads on social media. So they had a lot to pull from there. Yeah, like you can actually uh, draw very, very similar maps that you would for the spread of misinformation that uh, an epidemiologist would the spread of an actual disease or parasite pathogen. Exactly. That's why they call it an infodemic, just like a pandemic. Yeah. Come full circle. Yeah. Peer-to-peer -peer interactions, what spreads it? Um, so <laughs> the solution to this problem, you know, like the solution to the pandemic was social distancing. Mm -hmm. Let's all do a little uh, social media distancing. <laughs> <laughs> that also tracks. Yeah. All right. So um, they also found in this study that Canadians, just so happens, they actually follow many more accounts outside of Canada than they do accounts inside of Canada. Interesting. I wonder if there's yeah. a comparison. Actually, I, I can just ask you, is there a comparison to how many Americans follow just American accounts versus outside the rest of the world? 
Oh, they didn't look at that. Damn. Okay, never mind. But what I can tell you um, is the median numbers of accounts that Canadians follow. So researchers also found that Canadians just so happen to follow a lot more accounts based outside of Canada than they do accounts that are based inside of Canada where they are. So um, Canadians, the median of Canadians follow 36 Canadian accounts and then 88 United States accounts. Can we just... (laughs) Wait, when, when you say median, I just imagine you lining every Canadian up from, like, shortest to tallest and just picking out the one in the middle. That's the, the middle median. Canadian. Yeah, no, 36 is the median number of accounts they follow from Canada. 88 is the median number of accounts they follow from the United States. And then uh, 25 would be from various other countries. Okay, interesting. Yeah, so mostly the U.S. Twice as many accounts from the U.S. as they do from their home country of Canada. Um, yeah. So about 20% of accounts that they followed were Canadian versus 55% of accounts that they followed were United States based. Um, And if you look at the distribution of the ratio between their follows, there's another pattern that's pretty dramatic. Um, 71% of Canadians follow more Americans than Canadians on Twitter. That's probably bad. 18% of Canadians follow 10 times as many Americans as Canadians. That is definitely bad. Yeah, so they were right. I mean, we are an elephant to Canada. We are, even though they've taken a lot of steps to prevent us from influencing their mainstream media, we are a big force on social media. Yeah, you can't stop the internet. Sorry. Yeah, also sorry. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So in addition to following more non-Canadian accounts, Canadians also retweet more stuff from the U.S. than they do from Canada. Um, And it's an even bigger difference. So most so 45 percent of the things that Canadians retweet are from U.S. based content and only 6.8 percent are from Canadian accounts. Oh, wow. Yeah. So to retweet something is to take something that you see and to post it on your own page without really saying anything about it. Um, But it's usually usually when you retweet something, you agree with it. Is it? I don't have a Twitter. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) You may have often heard me when I agree with something that Jarrett says, I often say retweet. Yeah, yeah, that's happened. Has that happened? Probably. I do it a lot. (laughs) I do it a lot in work meetings. And then my older coworkers are like... (laughs) And then my younger coworkers are like, <laughs> <laughs> so you're the median in that situation. Yes, the millennial median. I uh, I don't even have a Twitter, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. So another finding of this was that health misinformation um, is uniquely vulnerable to broad trends and misinformation. Um, and that's because they found that medical information seeking from non-official sources is really common. Basically, people are much more likely to ask like lay people and the internet for health information rather than their doctor. That makes sense. A lot of people are tend to be distrusting of like the big, big medicine. Exactly. Exactly. So that plays into it. Another thing that plays into it um, is that there's a ton of documentation of, of misinformation um, on social media related to vaccines, Ebola, Zika, and of course, COVID. So there's a lot of medical misinformation around, um, and people do tend to go to social media for medical information, which if you are a person who does that, stop. (laughs) (laughs) 
no, truly, please stop. Because it's a really bad place to get medical information. Like it has been shown that there is more misinformation than good medical information on social media. So I don't doubt that just for a ask, second. ask a doctor or ask a nurse or ask a, you know, a family member who, you know, works in a hospital, just anything but social media, please. Okay. So that concludes our examination of Canadian, um, Canadian social media users preference for American social media. Um, now let's take a little deeper dive into us social media, um, users and, what U.S. social media users spread about COVID-19. Again, do we have to? Unfortunately, yeah. So a survey of U.S. social media users found 29% of respondents agree that the threat of COVID-19 has been exaggerated to damage President Trump. One in three. That's too much. Oh, boy, that's too much. Yeah. And 31% agree that the virus was purposefully created and spread. Okay. So here we have some of the origins of that misinformation that we're seeing spread around Canada. Us. Um, yeah. From one in three of American social media users. Uh, <sighs> God. So the strongest, <laughs> um, the strongest predictors of Americans um, espousing those beliefs. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Um, Can I do one predictor? Oh, yeah, sure. If they angry react on Facebook to like the CDC here or something. <laughs> One hundred percent of them. <laughs> no, I wish they would have tested that, but they didn't. Um, mostly, they asked him just a bunch of questions, including these questions about uh, COVID nineteen, and asked them to rate it on a scale of how much they agree to it. Um, and so they found like lots of clusters. Um, so the strongest, like the things that were most closely related to these beliefs that COVID nineteen was exaggerated to damage the president. And that COVID-19 was purposely created and spread um, were uh, a psychological predisposition to reject expert information, also known as denialism. Oh, God. Yeah. And a psychological predisposition to view major events as the product of conspiracy theories, also known as conspiracy thinking. Yeah, like QAnon. Yes. Closely behind those um, as like clusters of what was also correlated with these beliefs um, were partisan and ideological motivations. Why do we have politics? Yeah, that's how I feel too. How I feel about that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. Um, Even when accounting for partisanship and ideology, um, support for Donald Trump was also extremely strongly related to the belief that COVID-19 had been exaggerated. Even Um, though he got the vaccine. I know. He also got the virus. (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah. So like he, there were a lot of his early messaging about the virus was like, oh, it's no big deal. It's just the flu. It's a hoax. Like yeah. he said all of those things. So that makes sense. And then his next stage was refusing to not call it the China virus. Oh God. Yeah. Just, um, yeah. Just going for that, that Asian hate. Yep. Uh, which is another, actually, I didn't mention it. Another really big risk of those statements that were circulating around Canada and the U.S. is a lot of them rely on anti-Asian tropes. And once more, that is absolutely not okay. Asian people are human beings just like us. And they are subject, have been subject for, I mean, hundreds of years to a lot of racism and hate and subjugation in America, but especially since the pandemic has started, like violence against Asians has gone up 
really high and that's not okay. We need to be actively doing things to make sure that that does not continue. Um, so once again, we at this podcast firmly stand against Asian hate. And um, that is that. Indeed, none okay. of that BS. None of that. So researchers also found looking at Americans on social media who believe these misinformation statements, that belief that the virus was spread on purpose um, is most related to conspiracy thinking and is only, and is slightly more concentrated among self-identified Republicans and conservatives than Democrats and liberals. Yeah. That's so, that's so fascinating. Mm-hmm. I feel like there's a lot of things that explain it, but I'm, anyway, keep going. Yeah, unfortunately, I mean, this study doesn't go into the reasons like why Americans believe that. Um, and that's a really complicated issue. Like talk about um, beyond one way determinism. There's so yeah, many. Right? <laughs> yeah. Um, but it, what they have found is it's it's a thing for sure. <laughs> Canadians who follow American accounts on social media are much more likely to consume misinformation, embrace false beliefs about COVID-19 and subsequently spread them. In fact, when Canadians do retweet uh, a tweet containing COVID-19 misinformation, um, 53% of the time, it's from a U.S.-based account. Ooh, that's that's a good old half. Yeah. Um, and then Canada-based accounts uh, are only 7.5% of the source of the misinformation. Good on them. Yeah. So this confirms Canadians are better than us. Yes, we didn't already know. Um, well, they do definitely have a, a, a stronger um, belief in science um, and expertise uh, compared to the U.S., so that's also correlated. Um, to summarize the findings of this study, um, they were looking to find what caused this COVID-19 misinformation infodemic in Canada, and they found that the U.S. was the super spreader of the COVID-19 misinformation and social um, media is the main conduit. Boy. Yeah. Again, um, to anyone who doesn't live in the US, uh, congratulations and we're sorry. Yeah, um, it's really disheartening to see this, you know, yeah. that so much false information, false and dangerous information is coming out of our country. Um, I mean, we know it's happening in our country, but it's really, it's really disheartening to see that it's spreading outside of our country as well. But I mean, of course it is. America has a huge influence on culture globally. Like, look at blue jeans. <laughs> <laughs> you know? I wear those. I know, but like they're they're an American thing. And, you know, they're everywhere now. Are they an American? Yeah, they are an American thing. Man, good old diesel jeans. Yeah, they're like the most American thing. Um, I thought that was... Um... McDonald's, <laughs> which is also everywhere. That's just actually another example of how American culture is just everywhere. Mm -hmm. We've raised yeah. that uh, red flag with a yellow M on it. Yeah. Did you ever watch uh, Parks and Rec? Oh, of course. Do you remember um, the the final episode where 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 they do that time skip to what was then 2017, and they have some ad where it's like Chipotle UNESCO Exxon, one of America's eight companies. <laughs> Uh, conglomerates. <laughs> Kill them. Yeah. Eat them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. So, obviously, yeah, this is disheartening information, um, especially for Americans. Um, means we really got to shape it up out there. Um, it's also a sign that we probably should not be going to social media if we're looking for accurate content. Um, yeah. 
And a big apology to, to Canada, who has worked so hard to keep their media, like, accurate and, you know, helpful for their public. And then here's America just creeping in with all of our politicized um, trash. <laughs> That's just, like, a whole other layer to this. Is like they've tried for years to step away from our bullcrap. Yeah, it's, it's, I'm really sorry, Canada. Yeah. Um, yeah. So to quote Bridgman, our friend Angus, <laughs> um, it's hard for Canadian journalists, scientists, and public health experts to be heard by the average Canadian, given all the noise generated by American sources. <laughs> what a clinical way to say that. And countries with journalists and political leaders who don't indulge conspiracy theories or profess anti-science views are unfortunately not immune to dangerous infodemics. They are not. Because of us. Because of the elephant. We are the elephant. I honestly think the comparison is rude to elephants, especially after getting to the bottom of this research. <laughs> elephants are awesome. Americans need to shape up. Yeah. Um, sit down. <laughs> Be humble. Um, yeah, so uh, many Canadians, like, they do acknowledge that, you know, a lot of this is self-selection. A lot of Canadians actively choose to consume news from the U.S. Um, however, social media platforms definitely play a key role in deepening that interest and spreading it um, because the algorithms saturate information streams with American news, which is something I did not know. Um, but they do. The algorithms prioritize American news. Um, and oh. algorithms on social media also actively propagate false news faster than factual news. Just Don't because it gets, cause it gets shared more? Yes. Um, and that's because um, the algorithms privileges content that draws an emotional response from the users. Oh. So misinformation is much more likely to provoke an emotional response than facts. Because it's usually like, we're all going to die. And here's how yeah. you're going to die. Exactly. Um, yeah. So that that spreads misinformation like wildfire, basically. Um, so the recommendation they have in the discussion section here is that governments who wish to limit the spread of infodemics and misinformation should consider the ways that social media platforms push out of country information to the top of news feeds. Um, this infodemic has the capacity to change important attitudes and behaviors, influence the transmission patterns of COVID-19, can change the scale and lethality of a pandemic, and those are big real-world consequences to algorithms. So we need to be putting pressure on these big social media companies. Looking at you, Zuckerberg. It's Facebook. <laughs> I don't actually know who owns the other ones. Um, all right. So those are like the recommendations as far as like what governments should do. Um, but I also dug into what individuals can do on social media to try to stop the spread of misinformation. Um, just try to stop the hemorrhaging of misinformation coming from our country. Yeah. I actually found a really, really useful resource. Okay. Yeah. It comes from um, New York University, my alma mater. I went there. Um, <laughs> and it's, uh, it's called the Debunking Handbook. Um, and like, there's so many collaborators on this. I'll post it on the Instagram, but like, it's real legit. Okay. Um, it's amazing. Um, so just actually, I'll just list not all of the individual researchers who collaborated, but all of the institutions that collaborated to create this in 2020. Okay. So we have New York University, who was the parent, um, and then other collaborators were the University of Bristol, the University of Western Australia, 
Center for Climate Change Communication, the University of Illinois, Boston University, the University of Minnesota, the University of Maryland, the Australian National University, the University of Regina, Regina, sorry, um, the George Washington University in Washington, D.C., MIT, Massachusetts Institution of Technology, Northwestern University, University of Exeter, University of Cambridge, University Erfurt, University of Michigan, <laughs> Erfurt, I don't know, German probably, um, USC Rossier School of Education, Northeastern University, The Ohio State University, and Kent State University. Oh, none of those are, are my alma mater, but that's fine, I guess. Oh, man. Shoot. <laughs> Um, but yeah, lots of people involved. Um, so I'm not going to go through the whole um, debunking guide because this is already a pretty long episode, but I'll just cover like their quick guide. Um, and I'll post a link to the full guide in the show notes because it's available for download for free for anyone. Yay. Whoop, whoop. All right. So number one thing in this guide is to be aware that misinformation can do damage. Uh, we've yeah. covered this pretty well already, so I'm not going to read their whole thing about it. But um, yeah, misinformation can do a lot of damage. It can change people's behaviors and attitudes and make them do things that are not good for them. So because of that, it's very important to protect people against being misinformed. Read, it's important to protect people against being misinformed, not it's important to attack people who are misinformed. Yeah. It's them. In many anyway. cases, it's not their fault. Yes, exactly. So the best ways to protect them are making them resilient against in misinformation before they encounter it, or debunking it after people have been exposed. Um, and we'll dive into how to do that. So the next thing to be aware of is that misinformation can be very sticky. In other words, it sticks in people's minds more than factual information. And again, that goes back to that emotional connection that misinformation often comes with. Um, so fact checking um, can reduce people's belief in false information, but Misinformation often continues to influence people's thinking even after they receive and accept a correction. That's called the continued influence effect. That makes sense. Because so of like the emotional response associated with it. Exactly. So I kind of touched on that earlier. Basically, it's even if a factual correction seems effective, um, people frequently rely on the original misinformation in other contexts. So like if they're answering questions that are indirectly related to the misinformation, they often cite the misinformation rather than the correction. Hmm. So it's stickier and it's like the pathway in the brain to the misinformation is faster because it's emotional. So that's the thing that comes up first when you're not thinking deeply. Yeah, good old buzzwords. Yeah, exactly. So um, it's really important that you use the most effective debunking approaches um, to avoid that continued influence effect, to really replace the misinformation in someone's brain with something else. Um, so the best thing you can do to stop misinformation from spreading is to preempt it, um, prevent it from sticking. So you can do that by explaining misleading or manipulative argumentation strategies to people. Um, so have you ever seen like a list of cognitive distortions? No. All right, I'll post those too. But things <laughs> like um, logical fallacies, black oh. and white thinking, there are these tactics that our brain does sort of naturally, but they're also tactics that could be used for like manipulation purposefully. Um, and if people have a widespread understanding of those manipulative ways of arguing, um, then people basically, they literally call it an inoculation to misinformation. Oh, I like it. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's seriously, it's a great 
analogy because just like a real inoculation, like a vaccination, you get a little bit of the thing so that your body can recognize it later and shut it down. Um, it's giving you a taste of the techniques that are going to be used to confuse you and make you believe things that aren't true so that you can recognize it when it actually comes at you later on in a dangerous way. I just thought of a really fun uh, possible historical domino effect that might have happened if we were actually inoculated in like the US from like the 50s onward. Listerine would have never became a thing. Like mouthwash? That was um, basically spread to the United States because of uh, they started telling people that they might have halitosis, which is a made-up thing. Yeah, um, and they were like, if you have halitosis, you're undesirable, because they could literally say that in the 50s. And that's how it caught on. Wow, okay. Mouthwash is actually not bad for you, though. It's not, but halitosis isn't a thing. <laughs> yeah, halitosis. It sounds like a disease, but it's just a word to describe bad breath, which is not a disease. Um, yeah. All right, so... Um, the best way to do this sort of inoculation um, is to specifically focus on those techniques, um, those cognitive distortions, not to focus on potential future pieces of misinformation that you make up and you're like, if you hear this, don't listen to it because that's just spreading the misinformation in the earlier way. You want to give them the skills, not you want to give them the fishing pole, not the fish, right? Yeah. Okay, and then the last item they have in their quick notes before they really dive into the good stuff and the research um, in this debunking guide is that if you cannot preempt, if you don't have the opportunity to inoculate um, the people in your life, you must debunk. And for debunking to be effective, it's really important to provide a detailed alternative to the misinformation. So you want to provide a clear explanation of why it is now clear that the information is false and what is true instead. Both of those are very important. Right, if, because if, you gotta refute it and then you gotta replace it. And that's how you fix that pathway. Because if you don't, then they can just latch onto something else that isn't true. Exactly, exactly. Um, so when those detailed refutations are provided with the why it's false and what is true, misinformation can actually be unstuck so that people stop referencing it in the back of their minds. Um, without those two elements of the refutation, misinformation can continue to stick around. Um, and then when refuting misinformation, it's really important that you only state the piece, information, piece of misinformation one time um, so that you're repeating what's true more often than you're repeating what's false. So you lead with the facts, then you say the myth, then you say why the myth is wrong, and then you say the fact again. The fact sandwich. Sandwich it between the truth. Exactly. And um, that's that on that. So oh, that <laughs> <laughs> that actually tracks in kind of like the science that says, well, not says, but like shows what people actually will take from a presentation, which is usually they'll take the beginning and the end the most, and not really the intro and the conclusion. Yep, that's smart. I like that. Okay, yep. so that's how you do it. Um, this handbook is awesome. I'm going to be disseminating it to everyone I know. <laughs> as well as all of you people. We love you so much. Thanks for listening. Please rate, please review, and please, 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 pretty please subscribe um, and tell your friends to subscribe, at least one of them, or like a family member. Or if you really hate this podcast, like just start giving it to people you don't like. We don't care. Well, we care a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> no, I want listeners. I don't care if they're undesirable. Hey, we did hit 500 downloads, which is uh, pretty big. That is exciting. It's happening. It's crapping. <laughs> um, cool. All right. And this has been another episode of Science Podcast. My son, Goodbye. Wow. Okay. Bye, everyone. Madison is spinning around in the air. <laughs>